In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions. Be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote, from accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht git blether. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Scottish Blethers with Helen, Liz Lister, Tongue Twister and Susan. Coming up in the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to be exploring the following themes. Liz. Well, I've looked back to anniversaries that we're celebrating this year and this year is 90 years marking the anniversary of when the islands of St Kilda were evacuated. Helen, what about you? And this week, I'm going to talk about something we see all over Scotland, sheep. And I'm going to take you back in time to the late 1700s, early 1800s, and tell you a little bit about a super engineer called Thomas Telford. Lots of interesting stories. Without further ado, over to Liz. Thanks, Susan. Well, I think we've all got those bucket lists, haven't we? And there's still a lot of places in Scotland that I haven't seen. And when it comes to my bucket list for Scotland... Right at the top is St Kilda. Now, you may or not, may not have heard of St Kilda, but it's actually an archipelago of four volcanic islands. They were punched through the Earth's crust when the Atlantic Ocean was formed over 60 million years ago. And in that intervening 60 million years, they've been lashed by Atlantic waves and some of the strongest winds in Europe to carve them into the shape that they are today. It's one of the most remote and extreme environments in Scotland. They're situated over 100 miles away from the Scottish mainland. And you couldn't really imagine people living here, but they did do for over 4,000 years. So I've always wanted to go out and see this extreme location and see how the people lived. And I was supposed to be going next year, taking a tour out there. So fingers crossed that it all goes ahead in May. I'm told that as you approach the islands, you just see them bursting out of the ocean. They're just vertical sea stacks and sea cliffs climbing up to over a thousand feet above your head. And as you draw closer, you have the clamour of over a million seabirds dipping and diving round about you searching for food or crying from their nests up on the crevices on the rocks. So how did people live in this most extreme of environments? Well, you can just imagine the smell, for one thing, from all of these seabirds. <laughs> but these seabirds were crucial to them because their main existence was subsistence farming, growing some crops and keeping sheep. But it was the seabirds that made their life so exceptional. From them, they got food, they got feathers, they got oil. And that made the way of life in St Kilda unique. So from a young age, when the girls were trained in keeping house, the boys were, perf were perfecting the skills of climbing up and down sheer precipices, jumping across the gap between one cliff face and the other, making ropes and testing that they were strong enough to take their weight, and carrying eggs and boxes on their back to keep them safe as they descended from these high cliffs. And of course, catching and killing the seabirds themselves that were the mainstay of life on the islands. 
The islands belonged to a rich landowner on the mainland, but on the whole, the people of the islands were left to their own devices. So as long as they paid their rent each year in the form of farmed goods, woven cloth, and of course the oil and feathers, they didn't get bothered. They didn't pay taxes, there were never any crimes recorded, and they were never signed up for military service. Every morning except Sunday, the men would meet to share information, discuss issues, resolve disputes, and make decisions, particularly what they were going to do every day. And this communal collective existed for thousands of years, until the early 19th century, when the outside began to encroach on them little by little. It started with religion. In the early 1840s, the Church of Scotland split, and the people of St Kilda decided to follow the We Free Church, which frowned on any frivolity, and there was a strict adherence to prayer and worship. That changed the regime on the island. Not only did the fun go out of life, but a hierarchy was created with elders appointed by the minister. It was a hard life. The fertility of the land was poor. The people were regularly affected by diseases like smallpox that would decimate their small population. And the infant mortality rate was exceptionally high perhaps because they used the practice of rubbing the umbilical cord with oil from the stomach of a fulmer. That maybe had something to do with it. Oh dear. Then came the final nail in the coffin, tourists. And with the first visitors arriving from the middle of the 19th century, the people began to see life on the other side. They began to sell the eggs of rare birds, and then socks and woolen goods, and for the first time, money began to circulate. The genie was out of the bottle and the population began to decline. And so it was that in April 1930, 90 years ago this year, after a particularly harsh winter, the local nurse, Williamina Barclay, invited the remaining 36 inhabitants to a tea party. And there she put forward the prospect of evacuating the island. But everybody had to agree. And while the younger adults were generally keen, the elderly residents were more reluctant, thinking they'd have to live on charity and public assistance. But in spite of their reservations, they wrote a letter to the Secretary of State, and by August that year, the resettlement and evacuation of the islanders was complete. So I think it's a sad story, an interesting story. You know, we can go and we can actually look at the relics of people living in this harsh environment. Has anybody ever visited? I have. I've been a couple of times. First time I went was for a diving, scuba diving trip. And the underwater environment at St Kilda is amazing. And I know it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site for the natural environment and for the culture. But underwater really is quite something teeming with life, fish, seals, loads of sea anemones and stuff. And then I visited just last year from Leverborough on the Isle of Harris and it's about a two and a half hour boat ride out and it's amazing the above water stuff is what we focused on and they've got these little stone houses not quite houses they're called cleats c-l-e-i-t-s and they're kind of a stone dome with a turf roof and this is basically what they would use to dry out all the birds that they captured and they would air dry their food and this is where they would go, you know, instead of you and me going down to the little local shop and buying a bag of crisps or some chocolate, well, they'd just go up to the local cleat and just help themselves to, you know, an air-dried bird. <laughs> and that's how they would survive throughout the year. Yes, yeah, St Kilda's unique in that it's actually a double world heritage site, a dual site. There's only 39 of them in the world, and this is the only one in Britain. So it's its bird life. 
from the that side but also the cultural side as well it fascinates me to be able to see how people lived in this extreme environment and obviously the national trust are doing a great job of looking after the island now and trying to keep that cultural heritage alive and stop it falling apart and they have been rebuilding some of the houses along the street and it's an amazing place to visit i mean the birds alone we were there at the end of june and the million seabirds it was like a scene out of alfred hitchcock's the birds oh my goodness. the, the yes. sky was just absolutely covered in them it was mind-blowing really uh-huh. and i'll put up a little bit of video when we do the social media for this episode and i'll show you some of the photos and the videos of roundabout st kilda you're going to be absolutely blown away by the place i know the excitement it's of quite actually something. getting to it i mean it's, yeah. it's a challenge to get there with the tides and the weather you know just getting a gap that you can get there but just seeing this emerge from the ocean 100 miles off the mainland it must be fantastic Wonderful. I've not been to St Kilda, but as you said, Liz, it's a bucket list one. But I have been to the west of Ireland and looked at the Blasket Islands, who have a very similar history. And they have got a beautiful museum just overlooking them, which tells the story. They were evacuated as well, just like the people of St Kilda. They also had a lot of the creative, artistic people went out to, not a lot, just one or two, went out to the Blasket Islands and recorded a lot of the songs and the stories that had been passed down from generations. And that's all in the museum, the Blasket Islands Museum on the west coast of Ireland. Very worthwhile visiting that as well. And of course, there's so many um, videos that are on YouTube, you know, old documentaries of these people how they went and collected the birds. I'm told that there was different ways that you had to catch them. If you caught a fulmer in the wrong way, it spat at you and you wanted to catch it so that you kept its stomach full of the oil, which was, of course, so precious to them. Uh, so uh, I, I advise people to go and have a look at some of these documentaries on YouTube. The Guga Hunters. Yes, the Guga Hunters are quite something. The importance of these birds actually came sharply into focus in 1727 because smallpox hit the main island of Herta and of a population of 122, 77 died because of smallpox. But this wasn't the biggest thing. Just before the smallpox hit, three men and eight boys had been rowed out to one of the sea stacks, Stack and Armin, which is about a mile or two away from the main island. And they got left there to do their bird hunting, which is what you do. And then they were expecting people to come and pick them up from Herta, you know, row over, pick them up, because you couldn't keep a boat there. When you see the the sea stacks, you'll understand why. And they had a little cave, just a very small cave up on the stack itself. Well, they survived there for about eight months. And you're thinking, how did that happen? That was August 1727 was when they were rowed three nautical miles and they managed to survive for nine months on through a brutal Scottish winter on a sea stack. On a sea stack, that's incredible. And that was all down to the birds that they caught Mm -hmm. because, of course, there's no wood on the island, so how do you have a fire? We're going to have to use the oil from the birds. So it was an incredible feat. And it was actually the wives who managed to eventually row out to go and get them nine months later. (laughs) <laughs> they'd be they'd be preferred that they stayed there. It was obviously a good relationship, but the guys were prepared to go and not just leave them. 
the men were probably sitting there thinking, will they ever come? Oh, God. <laughs> and of course, yes, what did we wrong? On St Kilda, they didn't have a postman coming round and delivering the post or, or taking yeah. the post. So they used to put their, their letters or anything they wanted to go to the mainland into a little barrel and just toss it into the water and hope that somebody would pick it up and take it to the mainland. Yes, I understand that this year to celebrate the 90th um, anniversary of the evacuation, that some school kids did it and they chucked the meal into the ocean and it was washed up in Norway. And there are plans for a visitor centre on the mainland, well, I say on the mainland, on the mainland of Lewis Uh uh, at Mangersta. And I know that they're fundraising at the minute and it has a view straight onto the islands. Fantastic. But what was sad was that after giving up this way of life, one group went to Australia and 20 of them died on the journey out there. 16 survived and they actually set up a settlement in Melbourne. And it's still there as St Kilda today, one of the suburbs of Melbourne in in Australia. But the others, it wasn't really a successful life. They got given jobs in forestry. But I think such a change from the life that they were used to. Yes, there was certainly a quote, some of them saying that their animals had lived in better conditions than they did yeah. once they got to the mainland, which is, oh dear. you think you're going to a better life. And unfortunately, it didn't prove that way for many of them. That's but right. One of the islands was called Soe, and we still have the Soe sheep today as one of the native breeds. But they had to sell their sheep to pay for their passage to the mainland. That brings us very nicely on to our next topic, Liz. Absolutely. And if one of these days I do get fingers crossed for next year, Hopefully at some point I'll report back on my journey. As I said at the very beginning of this podcast, there are some things that locals hardly notice about Scotland and that visitors, especially the visitors from the USA, find charming. And one of these is sheep. They are all around us. There are more sheep than people in Scotland. There are about just short of 7 million sheep scattered around Scotland. But they're not native to Britain or and Northern Europe. They were introduced about 6,000 years ago, so they've maybe been here long enough now. But initially they were reared primarily for their meat, but we very quickly they realised the value of the wool. And so we think of sheep now more in terms of wool. Two main sheep rearing areas in Scotland. One is the border region, where the sheep management is carried out by the shepherds, employed by the estate. But the wool from the sheep there is used to produce tweed, a very hard-wearing material. And we think more about the border sheep for sort of wool for garments. But in the highlands where sheep rearing was introduced in the late 18th century by the estate owners, this is a time known as the Highland Clearances. And I'm sure that we'll come back to talking about the Highland Clearances in one of our podcasts. When small, the small farmers who used to raise the black cattle and sell them in the lowlands, but they could not raise enough rent to keep the estate owners happy. So they were evicted from their homes and the estate owners introduced flocks of sheep and these were managed by the lowland shepherds who were brought in. A much more profitable enterprise for the estates. And the two areas, highlands and lowlands, separate out into two main breeds of sheep. The blackface, which is easily recognisable by guess what? It's blackface. And that's the commonest and the one that you'll see probably most of your time in Scotland. And the cheviot, which is a more of a dirty cream coloured sheep. And it's more associated with the borders and the foundations of the Scottish borders textile industry, which was absolutely huge and thankfully is coming back. 
But another face name for the black-faced sheep was the Linton sheep, which was that was from the market at West Linton in Peebleshire, where the sheep were bought. Its introduction to the Highlands it began in the 1750s and lasted for about 100 years, and it was known as the Linton sheep. But the Cheviot sheep, this is the one that we think about for wool, it's much more wooly looking, was taken from the borders to Caithness, that's right in the very north of Scotland, in about 1790. And here it developed into a larger type, which is now known as the North Country Cheviot. In Caithness and Sutherland, the Cheviot still predominates. But it was the Napoleonic Wars that set the price of sheep sky high because the high price of wool added to the popularity of the sheep for the landowners. And this is where we begin to think about the St Kilda sheep, the Scottish Dunface, the mainstay of the subsistence farmers who lived in the north and west of Britain for thousands of years, were being replaced by the Blackface and the Cheviot. And by the start of the 20th century had all but disappeared. Fortunately, these little multi-horned black sheep made attractive additions to the parklands of the large country's houses, where they were known as St Kilda sheep. In 1973, these were identified as an endangered breed, with only about 300 animals remaining in the parkland flocks. They were renamed Hebridean sheep, and today they are seen across Scotland and are enjoyed by our visitors. But the world's oldest sheep, a black-faced ewe nicknamed Methuselina, was 25 years old and 11 months when she died in 2012, and her owner put her longevity down to her still having most of her teeth, allowing her to graze easily. Well, my comment is, don't start calling me Methuselina. Be warned. (laughs) (laughs) My cousin used to farm sheep, unfortunately moved out of it about three, four years ago because it's just not making enough money just now. They're not getting sheep farmers, they're getting nothing, are they? Exactly. I mean, the wool for each fleece actually costs them more to have the fleece taken off the sheep than they get for the wool these days. And most of the wool that's taken off the sheep today is used in carpets. And mattresses. Yeah, Yeah, so it's, it's not being used so much for clothes anymore. And I suppose that's because tastes have moved. Yeah, and it's only going to get worse. I think it's interesting to think that in the past, they used the fleece they used clothes. the fleece. Yeah. Oh, yes, very good. Go, well, what you did there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, that'll bring us back to the Scots words later on. They used the sheep, the, the wool from the sheep for garments, and people didn't complain about it being scratchy. And I believe it's because so much of the oil, the lanolin, was still in the, in the fleece when it was used. It wasn't as cleaned out as it is nowadays. Yeah, and of course they use the lanolin nowadays because a lot of the cosmetic companies want it. So that's another product that comes from the sheep. Just, you were talking about Sutherland. I mean, the Highland clearances were one of the worst periods in Scottish history. Particularly hard up in Sutherland. And there's a song which I advise people to try and listen to, which is called The Great White Sheep. And it tells of the people being put off the land for the cheap as it was brought in by the landowners. And now, Susan, I think probably it's time for you to tell us all about Thomas Telford. 
Well, it's great because you've been talking about Caithness and Sutherland, and that's where Thomas Telford did a lot of work. So Thomas Telford was born in 1757 in southwest Scotland. He was the son of a shepherd, but within four months his father was dead. This made it very difficult for his mother to earn enough money and to keep all the families and the siblings. And in his spare time, once he was old enough, Thomas took out shepherd duties. So there you go, another little link. And he was a shepherd at the age of 14 until, or up until the age of 14, when he became an apprentice stonemason in 1771. And you can still see his mark on one of the bridges in the southwest. However, he wasn't content being a stonemason and at the age of 23 took himself off to Edinburgh to work on the new town where he taught himself drawing and took a keen interest in studying architecture. Again, not content, he moves to London two years later and in 1782 starts to work under the auspices of Robert Adam and William Chambers, key architects and builders from the time, on Somerset House. And this is where he's, he's really good at his networking and he's linking with people and he finds himself a couple of sponsors. One of them is a gentleman by the name of Pulteney. Now, he did stay down south in England for quite a long time and he became surveyor of public works in Shropshire, doing a lot of works on canals because this is how heavy industry worked at the time, moving goods around. And the canals in England were key to this, but also working on buildings. And then eventually in 1788, he is taken on by the British Fisheries Board to come and work on Ullapool Harbour. And this is what sets him up for his work in Scotland because he's asked to come back a couple of years later to do surveys of a lot of harbours across Scotland and start on improvement works on them. And most of it was in the Sutherland and Caithness area. So Wick, Port Mahomic, Brora, Staxago, Keese, lots all down the kind of east coast of Scotland, right up at the top there. So that was him working on piers on behalf of British fisheries. And then he's also asked in 1801, because of this work, to look into the reasons for the emigration, huge emigration from the Highlands. This is prime clearance time and find out what's going on. And what he found out was that basically the lines of communication were rubbish. People couldn't get around easily. Goods and industry couldn't get into the areas. So he was brought on to work on a network of parliamentary roads and work on the canals as well. And in his time, he built over a thousand miles of parliamentary roads, which are some of the main roads that you find today. Yes, yeah, the roads yes. have been changed, but the line is the same. He also built numerous harbours. He built the Caledonian Canal, although, well, we could talk a bit about that one. It wasn't as uh, <laughs> as the success that everybody might make it out to be at the time. It took a lot longer than expected. It went massively over budget. Nothing new there and, then. <laughs> and sprung a hole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nothing new there then. And he also was responsible from 1823 for building parliamentary churches. Obviously, people weren't going to church enough, so he was brought on to build a network of church and with the church came a manse and very iconic style that you can see now kind of a square building from the side with three long windows and then kind of the peak on either end so Thomas Telford amazing man died at 77 basically worked himself to death 
but he was such a pioneer and was the starter of a long line of famous Scottish engineers. What do you remember about Thomas Telford, ladies? Well, not obviously because you're not that old, but, you know. <laughs> oh, you're so kind, Susan. <laughs> any key, key bridges or... One of the bridges that I used to love going to was the one in Vermoriston. It was a bridge over the most wonderful waterfall and the views on either side were fantastic, but it was a bit of a scramble to get to it unless you went the, ro- the longer way around. Yeah, what I love about them is that once you know what you're looking for, you see them everywhere across Scotland. Yes. You know, there's another Telford Bridge, or there's a model church. You know, this road was built by, by Telford. And what is particularly special for me, in, in a few episodes' time, I'll be talking about education. Scots always prided themselves on social mobility. The fact that even yeah. though you were the, the son of a, a posthumous shepherd, um, you could still make it in life through you know endeavour, effort, enthusiasm. You know, if you impressed, then there were avenues that you could rise up to the very highest ranks. I'm just thinking about you mentioned the parliamentary churches, Susan, that Telford yeah. designed, and I think in the late 20th century, in the 21st century, there's many people are very pleased and thankful for his design because they convert beautifully into resident, you know, domestic residences, people's homes, whereas yeah. some of the older churches don't convert easily, but the parliamentary ones are the right size, the right footprint to be converted. Yes, and a very simple interior, so yes. you can do whatever you want with it inside. And of course, he was recognised beyond Scotland because he actually advised the King of Sweden on the building of the Gotha Canal as well. That's right. Yes, and he got a royal honour from that. There's also, in my research, I found stuff about he was involved in the Welland Canal in Canada and the Panama Canal, but I think I might need to look a bit more closely at that one. Isn't Gosh, it? that's amazing. And then, of course, there's the, the bridge at Craigellachie in the Highlands, which... I think it was one of his earlier bridges in Scotland because there was certainly a ceremony there a few years back commemorating him. They put a plaque on that particular bridge, a beautiful sort of iron bridge. Yes, and then you've got the bridge at Dunkeld as well, which yeah. is a beautiful stone bridge, which yeah. is very iconic. And of course, you mentioned that your Caledonian Canal, the bit I like about it is that you mentioned it wasn't perhaps one of the most successful of things, but one of the things, it sprung a leak in the side and they thought, oh, how can I do it? And scratch their heads. And what they did was they got the local mill to weave some material, which they then put over the leak and then covered it up with puddle clay and secured the water in the, back into the canal. So I think that the wool and the weaving and the canal building all went together at that time. I've got to wonder if that's the bit that burst its banks a couple of years ago. <laughs> oh, it probably was, yes. And the other thing to tie in, and you were talking about the Highland clearances and putting people off the land, but traditionally the Scots were the, the backbone of the British army. And when too many of them started to leave, then they had a problem. So that's why they started to try and find work for them. And that's why he was asked to produce a report on the and harbours and piers in the north. And of course, you had the Silver Darlings, the herring that the Absolutely. fleet were following. So but that's another, story. So another story. So I'm going to move us on. On to the word of the episode. Helen, what are your word or words of the episode? Well, I'm putting two words in today and they're both connected with sheep. A male sheep or a ram is known in Scotland as a tup, T-U-P. And the female sheep, the ewe, is known as the yow, Y-O-W-E. So a tup and a yow equals ram and ewe. 
Brilliant. Thanks. Liz, how about you? I'm thinking of my first visit to St Kilda, hopefully next year, and I'm thinking of all those million seabirds floating about and nesting on the rocks. And my word is bowfin. And bowfin is a good old Scottish <laughs> word, which means to smell offensive. So if you take off a pair of socks and somebody tells you your socks are bowfin, you know you've got problems. Oh, I love that word, bowfin. Or a smelly cheese that yes. you've got in the fridge. <laughs> God, that's bowfin. Blue <laughs> Okay, and my word, well, my word's actually two words. It's a hygiene. <laughs> and this could be applied to Thomas Telford and his role as chief of works. A hygiene is the person in charge. Or you could say today, the hygienes in government are the ones that are putting us back yeah. under more lockdown restrictions. So let's hope the hygienes make the right decisions. Yeah, fingers yeah. crossed on a lot of counts yeah. there. <laughs> And I can't help but when you hear the word hygienes, imagine the Scots way of saying it, you know, with a sort of look of despair. Ah, it's the oh, hygienes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> now, here's a challenge to our listeners out there. We've been giving you lots of Scots words, words that you might not use locally. Try using some of these words and let us know the reaction you've had to using them from the people you're talking to. Just drop us a note on Facebook or make a comment on one of our Instagram posts because we'd love to hear your stories of using these words. There we have it, our blether for this week. If you'd like to engage with us on social media, everybody out there, um, we're on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook as Scottish Blethers. We'd love to hear what you think of the episode and any topics that you might like us to cover in, the, in future blethers. So please do get in touch. So it's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the new from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>